Arizona Votes, Election Day 2022, with Mike Broomhead. Hey, I always appreciate you spending some time with the show. Um, very important is the voting is, is happening. And a great story. I encourage you to, I encourage you all the time to go to KTAR.com. They got great coverage of everything. But Griselda Satino worked on a story about Prop 309. Prop 309 would change the way mail-in voting happens. I will tell you, I have been someone that has kind of bucked some people in my party. I think I think mail-in voting is terrific. I think that the vast majority of Republicans for years utilized it more than Democrats did. Um, that flipped, I think, in 2020. But I think it's going to be maintaining where independents, where the vast majority of voters like the ability – to vote by mail. They like the and there's a lot of people. I'm not one of them, by the way. I am I go to the polls. I'm just one of those guys that I like to go to the polls. I like to stand in the line if there is one. Um, it's just my thing. I like it that way. But I'm in the minority. Uh, people like to get their ballot. They like to be able to sit cup of coffee, uh, read through things, and then before they vote, they want to jump online. They want to learn more about ballot initiatives and uh, do their homework on candidates and kind of fill things in at their own leisure. That being said, there is always – there are always ways that we can make everything better. And, uh, you know, go back when I was a kid, credit cards, you had a swipe thing where you were just basically a promise. It was a carbon copy and you signed a piece of paper and then the retailer sent it off to the credit card company. And if the credit card companies, that card was stolen, they don't get notified for, you know, 15 days or whatever. Um, Or if you were over your limit, they didn't know it. Then we got credit cards with a strip where you scanned them. Then we got the chips, and now we've got the fast pay, and everything changes and becomes better. Is there a way to improve mail-in voting? And according to J.D. Mesnard, who is a Republican from Chandler, from Chandler, said if you're going to make if you're going to take advantage of mail-in your ballot, we do need to make sure you are just as uh, you who you are, just as we do for those who go to the polls. And I really don't know how anybody could disagree with that. In good conscience. I mean, very seriously. If you go to the polls and you have to prove who you are, you know, voter ID, uh, driver's license, affirm who you are on the screen, birth date, all of those things, you have to do that before they print out your ballot and hand it to you. Why wouldn't you have some kind of a system in place? It doesn't impede people from voting. As a matter of fact, it solves one of these things in 309 solves a problem for people. So you say, I can't afford an ID card. I don't have a driver's license. It is a financial burden for me to have to get an ID to vote. They're going to pay for it. You can get a non-driver's ID card as a piece of personal identification that would allow you to vote. And it's not the inconvenience part of it. If you're so inconvenienced by getting an ID card, then what are you voting for anyway? Uh, It isn't that big of an inconvenience to anyone. Voting is a right, it is a privilege, and I believe it's a responsibility. And the older I've gotten, the more I feel it's a responsibility to cast my vote, especially since I do a lot of complaining about what's going on. But how do you disagree with with Senator Messnard? If you're going to take advantage of mailing in your ballot, we do need to make sure you are you, just as we do for those who go to the polls. It makes it easy to vote, or it keeps it easy to vote. doesn't make it easy to vote. It keeps it easy to vote, and it makes it hard to cheat or harder to cheat. 
How do we argue with that? I understand all the arguing that's going on right now about you can't use tabulation machines. We should do paper ballots, which we use paper ballots, but we should count ballots by hand. I understand how that fight has exploded and divided people really into two separate camps. But how don't how at some point, both camps have to look at something and say it is what it is. So the people that don't want mail-in voting, that you got to vote in person, those ballots got to be counted by hand, and they've all got to be done on Election Day. That's not how it is. So if it is going to remain the way it is, why wouldn't you be a part of them saying, okay, then let's do this? And if you're someone that says you're crazy going back into the dark ages by having getting rid of tabulation machines and counting by hands and voting in person, how can you possibly count all of those votes in one day? That's impossible. If you're part of that group, how do you not look at this concession and say you're right? If you have to do all of those things when you go to the polls, why can't we do some of those things when we vote from our homes? So now if they send a ballot to the wrong place. If they send it to an old address, they send those things to an old address. Now, what you're able to do is say, um, all right, um, now this person can't just fill it out as a joke and mail it in. Do I think that it's, it's massive? I don't. But it doesn't have to be. It's one small step that keeps it easy to vote and it makes it harder to cheat. And the voters are going to have an opportunity to pass it, and I hope they do. I hope it's one of those concessions where people vote on this and say, you know what, it's not a bad idea. You don't have to say that it's corrupt in voting by mail by saying there's a way to improve the system. I didn't cut up my credit cards because people were getting their identity stolen. You know what I mean? And that they wanted me to uh, have uh, another level of security with the chips. I'm like, ah, I'm done. That's not what I ha- That's not what any of us did. And then one more thing, Um, of almost 11,000 students who applied for one of the state's expanded empowerment scholarships account, more than 8,200 have not been enrolled in public schools before. So this is from Cronkite News. It's a potential loss of almost $54 million in state public schools. Um, Opponents are confident that they're going to be able to get enough signatures to get on the ballot to stop the expansion of the ESA program or what's better known. It's not a voucher, but that's what it's known as, the voucher program. Um, Again, I would ask reasonable minds to consider why this program was expanded and why people feel it's necessary. Why do people in the state of Arizona believe charter schools are necessary? Why are there why homeschooling has has really uh, exploded in popularity? Why do you think people have switched to something called micro schools? It's because they don't have faith in the public school system. When you are when you are so far behind in reading and math skills as the public school system is in Arizona, parents are going to look for other options. So there has to be some responsibility taken by public education. So what they're trying to do is defeat this proposal to expand public schools. They may win. They may maybe they may win that they may be able to shoot down this voucher program. I don't know. But. Why aren't they looking at the reasons why these people are leaving? Why aren't you looking at why your customers are fleeing instead of forcing them to stay? After all, the tax dollars that they are spending are their tax dollars. The dollars belong to the taxpayer just like the children do. If you're not serving them in a manner that's acceptable to them, why don't you address that instead of trying to force them to stay? 
And I would say uh, my belief in this system is forget the people that are already in private schools that are going to use the money for private schools. It's their money anyway. But what about the families that will now be able to afford private school that couldn't before? What about those families? You want to shift to the others that are already in private school. I would love an answer. Address the young people in neighborhoods and in families where they could never afford an opportunity for a bright child and a private education. Couldn't afford it on any way possible. Tell me why it's not a good idea to make it available to them. And if you can answer that question, I'd love to hear it. Coming up in a moment, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about political rhetoric. Does it contribute to violence? It's a great question. We'll address it coming up here in just a moment. Values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Happy Thursday. I've got a very serious question for all of you to, to ponder. In all consistency, do you believe that rhetoric feeds violent behavior? I'll give you an example. Uh, the January 6th committee is getting ready to uh, to uh, have more hearings. And the premise behind this is to investigate whether or not the rhetoric of the former president caused violence that day or if the lack of rhetoric from the president didn't stop the violence that day. If you believe that the rhetoric of January 6th fed and led to the violent actions of some that day, do you believe, do you believe the opposite could be true? Um, It is an interesting question, and I'll tell you why. A North Dakota man uh, committed a politically motivated murder of a Republican teenager. This guy's name is Shannon Brandt. He's 41 years old. He was taken into custody. And he admitted to killing this kid, running this kid over because he thought that he was a right wing or an alt-right or a MAGA Republican operative. Um, Ellison reported uh, before the incident, called his mother, asked if she knew who uh, Brandt was. The mother knew him and uh, had been on her way to pick her son up in the town when it happened. The 18-year-old then called his mother back, informing her that he or they were chasing him. He admitted to striking the pedestrian with his car because he had a political argument with the pedestrian and believed the pedestrian was calling people to come get him. He admitted to leaving the scene of the incident and returning shortly after where he called 911. So he ran a kid over because he's a Republican. So now I have a question for you. The president of the United States stood on stage with red ominous lights behind him a couple of weeks ago, Marines standing in the background, and talked about how dangerous MAGA Republicans are and how they are semi-fascists. You know, I've said a hundred times, first you marginalize, you call them crazy, um, then you call them dangerous. That's how you get rid of people. But, and I mean this very sincerely, if you believe the former president's rhetoric caused violence, how do you not blame President Biden for this? Because I will tell you very honestly, I don't believe it's the fault of either president. 
I don't think Biden's responsible for this nutcase's behavior. And I don't like that Biden did what he did for a guy that ran for president saying that he was going to kill the virus and unify the country. He is uh, not batting a thousand. Um, I think that it was a divisive speech. I don't think it was called for. I think he should have handled his time differently. But he sees it differently. He's the president of the United States. He has a right to say what he wants. And there's going to be either political capital to be gained or political fallout from what you say as president. Do I blame Joe Biden for this maniac running over an 18-year-old? No, I don't. But I also don't think that President Trump's words caused people to be violent. There's the difference. I don't hate Joe Biden. I disagree with Joe Biden. I don't hate. I can honestly say I don't have hate in my heart for anyone. I disagree with them and I'll disagree with them passionately. And there are things that Donald Trump has said, not only things he has said, but the way he has said them that I have vocally disagreed with. Didn't think it was presidential. But if you're going to hang violence around his neck, I don't care if he went to the microphone and said, if I were you, I'd go break into that building. You have to be responsible in the military. Everybody out there that's a veteran knows this, that you are taught your first days in the military as part of your general orders. One is you must not can. No, you must follow a lawful order. If you are given a lawful order by a superior, you must follow that order, even if you disagree with it. But you are also taught at the same time, you must not follow an illegal order. So if you are if you are somebody that has prisoners of war and your superior officer says, I want you to walk in there and kill that prisoner. I'm giving you a direct order. You know that's illegal. You will be held accountable legally if you do it. There might be some accountability for the officer that gave you that, but you're going to be accountable. So this is completely different in the sense that what, you know, people were angry. People believe the election was stolen. Did the president choose words he shouldn't have used? Was it inflammatory? All of those questions. But if you believe the president's inflammatory language directly led to violence on January 6th, President Biden's words led to this. There's a direct line with people that are terrified about these dangerous young Republicans, and that's what they talked about. So what he talked about in that speech marginalized a huge group of people. Not only did he say they were bad, he called them dangerous. They are a threat to our democracy, and we've heard that rhetoric over and over again. They are threatening our democracy. These are a direct threat to our democracy. What do you think people are going to do? If you believe that Trump said they stole my election and it motivated people to break into the Capitol building, then you've got to believe that when the president, the vice president, and other members of the administration say these people are threatening our democracy, well, then how could this action not be because of that? It's 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 uh, it, it's one or the other. You can't have it both ways. You cannot have it both ways. In a moment, who can afford to buy the Phoenix Suns and the Phoenix Mercury? We'll let you hear from the experts next. Strong. 
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here. The big talk here in Arizona and around the sports world right now is that Robert Sarver is going to be selling, is in the process of selling the Phoenix Suns. A couple of things you have to know is that Mr. Sarver has control of who he sells to, although the NBA would have to approve it, but he gets to choose who the buyers are. And I believe, I believe that he is not just required, he's, uh, he can sell all the entire team. Um, and so he could force a buyout of everybody in, in this in the organization if he wanted to. Um, and their speculation has already started about who it is that could possibly um, buy this team, who has the the financial ability to buy the team. So Adrian Wojnarowski, uh, Roger, you know how who he is. <laughs> he is from ESPN. This is the list. You talk to league executives and GMs around the league, and for years they have all believed that the Suns could be a monster free agent destination, you know, up there with the elite, with the L.A.s, the New Yorks, the Chicagos, with the right ownership group. And so that'll certainly be incumbent on the next group and and who that's going to be. So that's the other part of this. It is our um, climate. It has to do with sunshine. It has to do with also the availability of housing, high-end, very, very high-end housing. Uh, it is a destination, Scottsdale, North Scottsdale, Old Town Scottsdale. It is an entertainment destination as well. Great winter months and a very low tax base is a big part of this because if you are someone and your contract is for $40 million, which most of us could never even imagine, and then you're looking what the tax rate is with local and state taxes in L.A., whether it's the Clippers or the Lakers, uh, it could be Sacramento or whatever, or a team in Arizona. I mean, it's a no-brainer uh, just on the money part of it. Now, if you're a team that's competitive, that is uh, a, a perennial um, a, a playoff team with good ownership, great coaching, and a city that loves you, what's not to love about Phoenix? Why wouldn't they be a destination? And that's a really good point that they're making. So here's a list. ESPN is throwing out some of these possible candidates. Jeff Bezos from Amazon, um, Robert Iger, the CEO, Walt Disney, Oracle co-founder Larry Ellison, and Lorene Powell uh, Jobs, who was the former spouse of Steve Jobs. Um, but the potential list is a lot longer. Sarver has a 35% stake in the Suns, and the Mercury wouldn't pose a serious financial obstacle to many. Um, it's unclear if Sarver and the managing partners have the authority to sell the team in full, but some news outlets have reported that. There are some news outlets that are saying that if, if, if Sarver is – if he's in the mood, let's say, he's being forced out in his mind. They're being – they're telling Sarver, you're out. We need you out. So Sarver said, OK, I'm selling. But if I'm out, you're out because I'm selling the whole thing. Does he have a right to negotiate and sell the whole thing? And, you know, does it need to be local ownership? Does it have to be someone with local connections? Is that going to matter? Because the Suns are such a local brand. The other part of it is, would they, would it, what if it was someone? Here's the nightmare scenario. If you're a hockey fan, which I happen to be, um, the concern has always been with the Coyotes, is new ownership going to come in and move the team somewhere else? And for a long time, the NHL wanted to make sure the Coyotes stayed here because of the footprint in the southwestern United States that was very important to the league. Well, now you have an amazing... Amazing franchise in Vegas. 
So now that that is on the ground, I don't know that the NHL is going to be as concerned about the southwestern United States footprint with having Vegas having a team. I don't know that. But for a long time, that meant a lot to them. It's different in the NBA, and it's different with the Phoenix Suns. There are very few franchises where I believe that the city is so identified by a sports team. You're never going to get the name the Cubs, I don't believe. You're not going to get the Cubs out of Chicago. Now, you may move a team, but they're going to have to take a different name. The Cubs' name will stay in the city of Chicago, like the Browns' name stayed in the city of Cleveland. Would that happen here? Would a team move? Well, I think part of this is you're not going anywhere. You know, they, they're going to have expansion. There will be some of these uh, cities that are going get, to get expansion teams. So I think whoever buys this has to know that this team is staying right here. I don't think they'd want to sell. Who thinks they'd actually want to? But when you have a team here in this city that is such a connection to the city, is it important to have local ownership? And then who do you get? You know, uh, Larry Fitzgerald has a stake in the team right now. Um, If Larry Fitzgerald's part of the ownership group where they sell and he's out as owners, does the new group bring him in? Do they give him a bigger role? I'll tell you what has been great for the Diamondbacks has been the fact that they have an ambassador out there in Luis Gonzalez. They have Randy Johnson now as well. The two of them from the story time of the 2001 World Series championship, the fact that, you know, when you've got people you want to buy sweets, and season tickets, a meet and greet and a hangout with Luis Gonzalez or Randy Johnson goes a long way. For the Coyotes, the face of that franchise has been Shane Doan. Shane Doan, in my estimation, is one of the greatest captains in the history of sports. Um, And he is so connected to that franchise. And being the front man in the face of that franchise to the public goes a long way in getting corporate buy-in and getting local people to jump on board. So who do you get? You know, do you, you know, do you have a Dan Marley? Do you, what do you do? Do you bring in a Charles Barkley? Are there people with local connections that then become the face of the franchise? And it's a great question. You know, it's, it's got to be people that not only have enough money to buy the team, but you have to have enough money to keep the team rolling. It's not like you're going to bo- go out and borrow a couple of billion dollars. So it's going to have to be very wealthy people. They're going to have to have a plan that the NBA believes in and that Sarver is okay selling to. This is, might be a long process. I'm anxious to see on this list as it narrows. And it, I will, I'm going to guess this. It's going to be a group of people that come together that we may not even know who they are yet that jump in here and say we want an opportunity not just at an NBA franchise but a great NBA franchise and a team that's ready to win now, a team that's winning now with a coach that any team in the league would want to have. So imagine now with an ownership group that's out there talking and you get NBA free agents that are saying to themselves, when this contract is up or this is my last year, I'm on the phone to Phoenix. I'm telling my agent, call the Suns. I want to go finish my career. The next step for me is in Phoenix. Let's go win a championship in that city. So this could be a, a long process, but maybe there's some great days to come in Phoenix because of this. Um, We're going to talk in a moment about uh, climate change. And the reason why is I believe that is the number one issue in this administration. But with the news we're getting about the economy, with the future of our economy right now looking in the immediate future, not good. Are they doing things that are making it worse with these policies? We'll address it next. (laughs) 
strong values and strong opinions. The Mike Broomhead Show, KTAR News, 92.3 FM, and the KTAR News app. Hey, thanks for being here in 15 minutes, about 15 minutes from right now. Kristen Bentz is going to join us from KB Advisory Group. We are going to have an extended conversation about what the Fed did yesterday, the three-quarters of a point jump in interest rates, but also the projection that it's going to happen again before the end of the year. That means around the holiday season, we could see another three-quarters of a point if that happens, uh, when that happens, I should say, what does that do to holiday spending? What does that do to your checkbook across the economic um, you know, ladder, wherever you are on that ladder? Whether you're shopping at Target or you're shopping at Barney's, it doesn't matter. How is it going to affect you? She's a brilliant uh, person in all of these regards. She will join us at 11.05. This is the part of the policy stuff that gets me. I was, I was just reading some comments from people. They asked some citizens in San Francisco, how do you think the president's handling the economy? And there was a woman that said, he's doing the best he can as a chief executive. This doesn't fall on one person. And there is a certain amount of that where she's where she is right, that you know what's happened in Russia and some other things that were outside of the president's control. Where are the things that are within the control of the White House, this administration, and their policies? And, and uh, this is the direction we went before, and I want to continue down this road. Um, the focus of... Uh, a lot of people in, that are elected to office in the Democratic Party, but especially the president of the United States, they are laser focused on one thing, and that's climate change. That is the number one issue, and nothing gets in the way, meaning we have inflation still very high. We are It's now projected, and we're going to talk about this after 11, that a lot of people are going to lose their jobs. We know it's coming. But things are still very, very expensive. Not only are they not doing things to make things less expensive, they are doing things to make them more expensive, all in the name of climate change. Senate ratifies a climate tree that will raise the cost of home appliances. So in a nutshell, there was a 1987 United Nations thing. Um, uh, it was called the, the uh, Montreal Protocol. And... Um, what it was done, what it was for was to, uh, it was about climate change. So this now, this new, um, part of this that ratified an international treaty that mandates the nations to phase out hydrofluorocarbons. So it is going to affect air conditioning and refrigeration. So here in the valley, it's going to affect you. So as expensive as it is, every one of us in Arizona knows that you got to make sure your air conditioner is in good order before the summer comes. Because the summer and the heat and the time that it runs 24-7 are what cause your air conditioner to have an issue. It's a health issue and a life safety issue to not have air conditioning in the summer. You also know that air conditioning companies are running like crazy morning, noon, and night to try to keep up with the demand of repairs. So you want to have it in good order when you start the summer off. But we also know that if it's going to fail, it's going to be because of those summer months. And when you have a failure, it's an expensive proposition to replace an air conditioning unit. We all know it is. That's going to be even higher. You need a new refrigerator? If you're a restaurant and you got to replace the refrigeration unit now, you got to upgrade, it's all going to get more expensive. So at a time where people are losing their jobs, at a time where businesses are being told the discretionary income of people is going to diminish, which means you are going to be fighting more for the dollar than ever before, you're now being told appliances are going to be more expensive. Why? Climate change. So, you know, and I again, I don't even have to call it's a criticism for me because I don't like it. But even if you like it, you have to acknowledge that this is what's happening. 
There are people out there waving the flag saying this is exactly what has to happen. We know it's going to be tough, but it's necessary to save the planet. I don't subscribe to that at all. But you have to acknowledge it's happening. So this is how if this president decides to run for reelection or whoever follows this president to run for election in 24, you are going to have to run on a platform that says we've been going through some tough times, but we're making headway on climate change. And that's the most important issue. And you better hope that the majority of this country believes you that the majority of this country that's watching job losses and a booming economy crash and burn to a certain extent with a lot of job losses. Here's another one. This is my one of my favorites. The state of California, the massive state of California, is telling the fossil fuel industry that you, you are going to be out of business by 2040 in our state. They will not allow, according to this, it would require minimum and heavy-duty trucks entering ports and rail yards to be fully electric by 2035. I want you to think about how that affects Phoenix, Arizona. Forget the rest of the country. Just let's be selfish. Imagine with how many companies have come here and put down roots, distribution companies. They have their distribution hubs here in the valley, out in the West Valley. Why? Because they're driving to the port of L.A. That's why they are the rail yards coming out of the port of L.A. But the trucks that are bringing goods and services to the port to be shipped and from the port to be distributed. What's that going to do to us? They will not let your truck into their state unless it's battery operated. What is that going to do to the cost of fuel? What is that going to do to the cost of everything you need to buy in the fossil fuel industry? You think the fossil fuel industry is going to continue the mass production of diesel fuel and maintaining and upgrading their equipment, especially with new EPA standards that are coming all the time? You think they're going to eat that cost knowing that California is going to drive them out of business? And the answer is no. We will be like Mad Max. There will be gas-powered vehicles fighting each other for five-gallon buckets of gasoline. That's what's going to happen. It is, it's insane. It is purely, pure insanity in my mind. Uh, one of my favorite people to have on the show is Kristen Bentz. She has a company called KB Advisory Group. Uh, she is internationally known as a retail analyst. She knows not what's happening, but why it's happening and what it will do. We're going to talk with her coming up in just a few moments, so you better stick around.